Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It seems a little out of place to be reading from Exodus chapter 40 this morning on Christmas Day. We read the story of the completion of the tabernacle. To make sense of this, we should go on a little tour of the tabernacle. It's one of those things that you read about, but it can be hard to see the whole picture in your mind's eye. The tabernacle, of course, was a big tent. Canvas walls were held up by big wooden boards that could be dropped in post holes. It was a sturdy, sturdy structure that was designed, however, to be quickly assembled and disassembled. It was meant to be portable so that when it was time to move, the people of Israel could pick up the tabernacle and take it with them. It had three main areas. It had a courtyard, which was a big outdoor area surrounding the main enclosure, the main tent. And then inside that tent, there were two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. Out in the courtyard, there was an altar for sacrificing animals, and there was a basin for the priests to wash their hands and their feet before they went into the most holy place. Inside the holy place, there were three things. There was a table that held some loaves of bread, and there was a lampstand that looked like an almond tree, and there was an altar for burning incense. There was also a veil. You heard about that veil in our Old Testament lesson, a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Past that veil, past that curtain, inside the most holy place, there was just one thing. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box covered with gold inside and out that contained the testimony, the tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. But besides just being a box, it was also a throne. On top of the Ark, there were these two angels, these cherubim, these winged angels, beside what was called the mercy seat, the throne of God. God said that he would meet Moses at the mercy seat and speak with him. And that's why the tabernacle is also often called the tent of meeting, because that's where God meets with Moses. At other times, it's also called the sanctuary. To sanctify something is to make it holy, and a sanctuary is a place for holy things. In the medieval church, if you were a fugitive, if you were a criminal on the run, you could find refuge inside a church. That's where our use of the word sanctuary as a place of refuge comes from. The original meaning, though, has to do with a place for holy things. It's no accident that we call this place a sanctuary. We're less inclined nowadays, perhaps to our detriment, we're less inclined to think of holiness as attached to particular places or things. And so when most people hear the word sanctuary, they think simply of a place of refuge. But before this is a place of refuge, it is a holy place, a place for holy things. That makes this place different from the rest of the world. And that's why we treat it reverently, why we do all kinds of strange things in this place, why we carry ourselves with such dignity, why we kneel and bow and sing. But unlike the tabernacle, God didn't give us directions for building this sanctuary. He didn't tell us what furniture to put where or what color to paint the walls. In fact, it isn't any of those things that makes this a holy place. God himself is the source of holiness. 
And so when God called Moses from the burning bush, he told him to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. It wasn't the ground itself that was holy, but God's presence made the ground holy, made it into a sanctuary. The same thing is true of the tabernacle. What makes the center of the tabernacle the most holy place is God's presence. God would come and sit on the mercy seat in this strange way by means of this glory cloud that would fill the most holy place. We heard about that in our lesson. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But did you notice this? It doesn't really seem like a place of refuge. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud was there. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was a holy place indeed, but it was too holy for Moses. Although the tabernacle was meant to be a tent of meeting, a place where God would dwell among his people, it was at the same time designed to separate the people from God. The curtain, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place was like the angel that God put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, that angel with a flaming sword. It was meant to keep Adam and Eve out. This veil is meant to keep people out of the most holy place, not because God wants them out, but because if they came into contact with his holiness while they were unclean, they'd be consumed like gasoline by fire. It's interesting to me that folks often have an instinctive sense of God's holiness. He must be the most holy one. And the danger that there is of being near such holiness. I can't tell you how often, at funerals especially, When I meet folks who haven't set foot in church in a while, I hear a joke about how they were afraid that God might strike them by lightning when they set foot in this sanctuary. It's the kind of joke that's actually funny because there's a little bit of truth in it. It makes sense that you shouldn't just waltz into God's presence with all your sin and your unrighteousness, your unholiness. You shouldn't do that and expect to come out okay. A sanctuary is a holy place. And it's made holy by the presence of God. And that's something to take very, very seriously. God took it seriously when he gave instructions for the tabernacle. He gave a way to keep the people safe while sharing in his holiness. He wanted them to share in his holiness because that's how they would become holy themselves. The forgiveness and mercy that we need don't come from anywhere else than from God himself. And so God gave them a way that they could come into his presence and not be consumed. He gave them sacrifices and the sprinkling of blood. He gave them laws about purity and impurity. He gave them priests to pray and offer atonement. He gave them everything that you read about in the book of Leviticus, everything that you read and doesn't make any sense. He gave them all of those laws. It doesn't make for captivating literature, but the reason for all those laws was so important. God wanted his people in his presence, and he wanted them to be safe. He wanted them to receive his mercy and forgiveness. And he was there for them in his holiness and mercy. He was there for them in this tent, in this way that they could take with them wherever they journeyed. He was there for them whenever they called on him. God was there dwelling among his people. You could picture the tabernacle as a place where heaven and earth intersected. And so in this one spot and under the right conditions, you could share in God's holiness in a way that wouldn't kill you, but would in fact make you holy as well. 
That sounds like a pretty good arrangement, and this was how God provided for his people to be a holy nation. This is how he set them apart from the rest of the nations of the earth. But God's people did just what people always do, and they took this wonderful arrangement, and they corrupted it. They began to think that God was only concerned about them being clean on the outside. They thought that they could lay claim to God's holiness as long as they kept the sacrifices, regardless of what was in their hearts. And so they offered the sacrifices, and they washed themselves, and they made themselves clean outwardly, while inwardly they had unclean hearts. They had bad consciences. They sinned openly and willingly and thought that as long as they checked the boxes, as long as they kept the tabernacle going, as long as they gave their offerings and came to church on Sunday morning, everything would be okay. But they had lost sight of the whole reason that God gave them the tabernacle in the first place. So that with hearts cleansed through repentance and faith, they could draw near to receive his mercy and forgiveness. Not so they could make a show of their own righteousness. What's finally needed to be in God's presence is not clean skin or the blood of animals. It's not offerings and church attendance. It's the fear of God. It's trust in his mercy. It was never God's plan simply to give his people access to him at one place and at only certain times. That was provisional. It was temporary. God works in time and he was waiting For the fullness of time, he had something better in mind. What could be better than that? What could be better than God dwelling among his people in the tabernacle? You have the answer in our gospel lesson this morning. And this is where Christmas finally comes into this sermon. If you've been waiting patiently for Christmas to show up, here it is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We miss it in the English, but the word that's used there in the Greek is tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God took up residence not in a glory cloud upon a mercy seat, separated from the people by a curtain, but he took up residence in human flesh and blood. How could God be near to his people without destroying them? How could he cleanse them once and for all so they could be in his presence and receive his mercy? How could he save them from sin and death and a separation far worse than a curtain, far worse than an angel with a flaming sword. How could he do all of that? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is the heart and soul of our Christmas celebration. That is the chief mystery of the Christian faith. It's not all these other mysteries, like how can bread and wine become body and blood? How can the lame walk and the deaf hear and the blind see? It's not those things. This is the chief mystery. It's the mystery of the Incarnation. How can God become man? Think about what that takes. He humbled himself with a greater humility than we could ever imagine. Everything belongs to him according to his divine nature. He is master and lord of the universe. But in that manger, in that manger he was found to have the form of a creature, being born in the likeness of men, setting aside his glory, He did that so even the meek and the lowly could draw near to him. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and anyone else who would hear and believe, he did that so he could be near to them and they could come and be near to God's holiness. In coming to the manger and kneeling before the baby, they worshipped in flesh and blood the Lord God Almighty. 
They saw in the infant, as Simeon would say, the salvation that God had prepared in the sight of all peoples. This was better than the tabernacle. The news of Jesus' birth was a message of great joy for all people. This was salvation for the whole world, for a whole world that lay in sin and error pining. It was salvation for the whole world because Jesus did not just stay in the manger to be admired and adored by a few, but he went on humbling himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When he was crucified, the curtain of the sanctuary, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, it was torn in two. And heaven came bursting into this world, and the most holy place was opened to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, and to you and to me through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The separation between God and his people was undone by the cleansing of Christ's blood. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because we managed to make ourselves clean and fit for his presence, but according to his own great mercy. He washed us with his blood so that we can have access by faith to his righteousness and holiness, which are just what we need to become righteous and holy as well. This is better than the tabernacle. By Christ's death and resurrection, you can have a clean conscience, a clean heart, because his death on the cross atoned for every last one of your sins. There is nothing you have done, no sin so great, no crime so terrible, that has not been completely wiped away by the death of Jesus. And because you have been cleansed, because you have been washed in the waters of holy baptism, there is no obstacle between you and God. There is nothing that stands between you and his mercy and forgiveness, his holiness, which makes you holy as well. When you draw near this morning to receive his body and blood, you walk on holy ground. You kneel in a holy place, a sanctuary. But you don't have to take your shoes off and you don't have to offer a sacrifice or tremble with fear because you have been purified by Christ. The sacrifice that was needed to cleanse you from your sins has been made once and for all. The perfect and complete sacrifice has been offered. Christ's blood poured out to cover all your sin. He died in your place so that when you come into God's presence, there is nothing for you but mercy and forgiveness. That is what makes this sanctuary a holy place and a place of refuge for you. That is what makes your life a holy life. In fact, Paul goes even so far as to say that you are now temples. You are tabernacles. You have become the holy place, the holy dwelling place of God Most High. You're holy not in the way that the world measures holiness, not based on what we can see, not by counting up your selfless deeds or keeping yourselves clean and pure. You're holy by God's mercy and forgiveness. And that is why the angels rejoice today. Glory to God in the highest. By this mystery of the word made flesh and tabernacling among us, we have peace with God. May God the Father who has given you the spirit of his Son and has called you to holy living, may he strengthen you in faith and love this Christmas and always. And may the peace of God which passes all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.